Welcome to Armenian Alliance Conversations. I'm Maniak Sakyan. One of the organizations that formed in response to the Artsakh War of 2020 is an organization called the Center for Truth and Justice, CFTJ. The Center for Truth and Justice is a nonprofit organization that was established by a group of lawyers in November 2020 to oversee the collection of firsthand testimony evidence from Artsakh war survivors via in-depth recorded interviews. The CFTJ has law clinics in Armenia and Artsakh. At these clinics, experts train Armenian law students and young lawyers to interview survivors of the Artsakh war and to record their testimonies. These eyewitness testimonies are a resource for academics and lawyers to use for academic purposes and for legal cases as well. My guest today is Melina Melian, Esquire. She's an attorney who is one of the co-founders of the Center for Truth and Justice. She currently serves as a board member and manages public relations for the CFTJ. Ms. Melian is com a community activist and a passionate advocate for immigrants. In 2013, she established her immigration law practice in Glendale, California. She has also been raising awareness about the Armenian genocide, as well as other unrecognized acts of crimes against humanity. Ms. Malian earned a bachelor's degree in political science with a minor in Russian languages from UCLA. She received her Juris Doctorate from the University of California, Davis School of Law. Melina, welcome, and thank you for taking the time to be our guest today. My pleasure. Before we begin our conversation today, I feel obligated to issue a warning to our viewers. We will be talking about war crimes, which is a difficult topic for all of us. Some people may find it overwhelming emotionally to even listen to factual descriptions of violence and war crimes, and that is completely understandable. Our purpose is not to shock people with graphic descriptions of violence, but we also have an obligation to speak the truth in a way that is similar to what you might find in a news article or a news report. Meline, please tell us, what is the Center for Truth and Justice and what does it do? Thank you. Um, thank you for your beautiful introduction. And um, the warning that you also issued towards the end was very uh, important because uh, that's exactly what the Center for Truth and Justice does, something that a lot of people might find disturbing might find difficult to process, but that's the type of work that needs to be done. And this is a project that came about literally right after the war ended. Um, I could say when the trilateral announcement was announced, so that's when uh, the center was, uh, came about. Um, the main thing, there's a lot of things that the center does, and I, I'm, I'm hoping we're gonna talk about it throughout the interview, but the main thing that the center does is to collect eyewitness testimonies from the war survivors, um, from the most recent Artsakh 2020 war. So what we do is uh, we train the law students, upper level law students, we pair them up with licensed United States US attorneys from here, we pair them up they provide mentorship, uh, transfer of experience, knowledge, and all of that. So the law students then go out there on the field and interview uh, war crime victims, uh, eyewitness testimonies. And then these testimonies are then utilized uh, to create various reports 
they're used in litigation. The most important one that was recently used was um, with the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, you know, the UN court filing. So it's the preservation of evidence, and that's kind of the lesson that I think we Armenians need to learn because we've had um, we've had genocide, we've had some guide pogroms and all of that, but. Uh, at least I'm not aware of any um, organized uh, way of preserving the evidence in a fashion that we are doing, and meaning in a legal manner. This is not just us going out as journalists asking questions and you know recording things. No, things are done in a proper format. Authenticity, chain of custody, confidentiality, you know, all those legal norms are um, uh, preserved and uh, taught to the students. So that at any point in time, if we need to use this evidence in court, we're not going to have any issues with it. So that's the main thing that the center does. Just to give people an idea of how to join the CFTJ and how it works. So my first question is, if I'm an Armenian law student or a lawyer, or even a lawyer in the United States who's willing to volunteer for the organization, how would I go about doing that? And then also, you have an application process for people who want to be part of the CFTJ law clinics. So after the participants are selected and they show up to the law clinic in Armenia or Artsakh, mm -hmm. what happens from that point? So exactly, like you said, we, you could think about it, CFTJ having pretty much three different locations. One is the United States. The other one is in Yerevan, Armenia, and then obviously Stepana gets Artsakh because that's like the hotbed, you know, where the evidence is pretty much being collected. As far as uh, joining um, CFTJ here from the United States, you would have to be an attorney uh, or an undergrad student interested in international law, humanitarian law, human rights law that could help us out with some of the administrative duties, but also some of our actually undergrad interns are really great at doing a lot of research, um, some legal research and writing, and that's a great way to prepare them for law school too. Besides the fact that they have, they are immersed into this network of attorneys who could become their mentors. I mean, we're talking about 30 plus attorneys and then our judge who's a sitting judge in uh, Orange County. So there's a lot of networking opportunities that's kind of given to the law students here in the United States or potential law students. But obviously, uh, emphasis is on the attorneys to join. And what you could do is pretty much just email us, info at cftjustice.org. You could find us on various social media platforms, um, Instagram, Facebook. All you need to do is um, send us a direct message that you're interested and we'll do a small orientation and you could join, there, there's projects for everyone. If you're interested in uh, legal research and writing, you could do that. If you wanna be a team lead, meaning mentor the student in Armenia, you could do that. There's so many things happening, we'll find something for you. Uh, as far as the uh, law clinics are concerned in Armenia and Artsakh, it's a little bit different process. It's an application process and you have to be an upper level law student uh, and we are working with pretty much all uh, law schools, both in Armenia and in um, Artsakh. So the law schools, for example, the Yerevan State University, the French University, the Armenian American University, and the Russian Armenian University, and obviously the uh, Artsakh State University. So you would apply through them. 
uh, and uh, if you are selected, our application period actually ended for this for this year, for this upcoming uh, academic year, but it's going to be announced again for the next year. So people could be applying for 2023-2024 uh, period. But we have selected already applicants for 2022, 2023, and um, what it does is um, the program starts in September. So first two months you have lecture series um, because people have to learn what they're doing. You know, what is it that they're collecting the evidence for? Like if they go out and they talk to, um, I don't know, Arthur Sarkisian, for example, Arthur is going to be asking, who are you? Why am I providing this evidence? Why do I have to tell you the most horrific events about my life to you? What are you going to do with it? Are you going to keep it a secret? Is it confidential? So all those little details, because you can't just go out and ask people, you know, these important things <laughs> to talk about uh, without telling them what it's for. But obviously the students won't know what to answer unless they know uh, they have the theoretical background, which is why the first two months, September and October, there's weekly lecture series where we have guests, professors from different universities, judges here from the United States remotely via Zoom. We teach them what is evidence, what is ethics, what is confidentiality, what is fact versus opinion, um, so that these students are prepped to go and be on the field. Uh, we actually have staff in Armenia who are able to manage all of this. So when the students are ready, um, they monitor, they supervise their interviewing, uh, but also each uh, pair of law students, they're paired up. So each two law students, I mean, two law students are paired up with a U.S. attorney. So there's that mentorship there. There's that overseeing, supervising. So when they go and actually interview a person, uh, we watch the videos here and, you know, give them feedback. Maybe you could have asked this question. Maybe you need to follow up this. Or someone a person could start talking about the first talk war, you know, the early 90s. That's kind of important, and they may have skipped that portion, so they would have to go back. So it's kind of an ongoing process, but uh, if you think about it, it's like two important goals that are being achieved here. One of them is obviously preservation of evidence, but second is the educational component that we are preparing um, these law students to become experts when it comes to international law to be engaged in those areas because that's something that Armenia needs. So these are, the law students are our future leaders. So it's a beautiful kind of um, marriage of both uh, you're getting your evidence, but at the same time you're training your future um, leaders. That's one thing that I want to emphasize because this is an organization in which you have highly trained, very experienced professionals mm -hmm. in the United States trying to share their expertise in Armenia with young law students and lawyers to meet a certain goal. Exactly. And I, this is something that is talked about a lot in the diaspora, this kind of collaboration between the resources, the human resources that we have in the diaspora with Armenians and in Armenia. And this is really a model, an inspirational model for something that is happening already on such a, an important goal that you're trying to meet. Right. Um, 
one thing I remember, I think it was Mr. Artak Beglarian, you know, he used to be the Artak Ombudsman, now he's a state minister, but, but when he visited Los Angeles, um, this is kind of something that we knew, but we still wanted to ask him, and we asked, what do you need? First and foremost, what does Artak need? And his answer was capacity building. You know, it's not always about money. It's not always about the $100, $200 that you're sending. But if you're not giving them your time, your experience, you know, transfer of knowledge, that $100 is going to be, you know, spent. And the next day they're going to need the $100 again. But if you do the capacity building, transfer of knowledge and experience, that's a, diff that's a value that's not going to be lost. So that's what's really, uh, you know, the center is about. We're not passing uh, around donations. We're not doing that. Not that it's not needed. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to undermine the work that other organizations are doing, but I, at least this type of transfer of knowledge is also as important as, you know, the money going into both uh, Armenia and Artsakh. No, I completely agree because anyone who's studied economics or business, you know, we understand that human capital is actually much more valuable exactly. than, you know, actual cash. Um, just to kind of make a crude assessment, you can't hire an attorney, I don't think anywhere in the United States for less than, you know, $300 an hour. Mm -hmm. And you have a lot of highly successful attorneys managing their own careers and at the same time volunteering many many hours of their time to do something really good exactly yes uh, we're not even counting our time honestly and i do want to stress that everyone here in the united states and we have like i said close to 30 attorneys and our judge None, this is not a paid position for any one of us. So not a single penny is spent on administrative um, stuff here in the United States. We do have staff in Armenia because it's a little bit different. You know, there's logistics involved. The students are involved. So there's a lot more uh, supervising happening over there. Uh, plus, we could afford to put in the time and donating actually into our own organization so that it, it runs. Um, so yeah, definitely. How many people has the CFTJ interviewed to date? And how many people do you usually have on the ground at one time interviewing people? So we have collected, last I checked, uh, I think close to over 350 um, interviews, with tes testimonial evidence. And these are audio video testimonies. This is not an affidavit that's written on a piece of paper. Uh, if you think about it, it's a, we're trying to replicate um, Shoah Foundation. I'm not sure if you know much about them, but they have done, yeah, exactly. They have done audio, video, um, visual testimonies of survivors of, you know, Holocaust. And so many movies are made, uh, you know, based on those stories. So much is being done from just because of the testimonies that they have collected. Uh, so that, that would be the number. As far as the number of people we have on the field, so pretty much all the students. And so the students would be, uh, we have about 22 students uh, on, that are working constantly throughout the year, throughout each academic year. Uh, and they graduate sometime in um, June. But we do have staff also. We have four people in Yerevan and then uh, two in Artsakh that are collecting testimonies throughout the year. 
So those, uh, the staff members do not stop collecting testimonies and they actually do some of the complicated ones. For example, if we have a POW interview, we can't just give it to a new student who just learned what they need to, how to collect evidence or how to interview a witness. So that's something that's done by a staff member. Um, so you could say we have over 20 people, you know, uh, most of the time of the year collecting evidence. You're one of the co-founders of the CFTJ. Please tell us who was involved in the beginning and how did CFTJ come into existence? So it's, it's, it's actually not a funny story, but an interesting one because it, it was not planned. It just came about uh, and that's what's beautiful about CFTJ because it came out of need. No one planned to be, you know, uh, sending students or ourselves uh, into the field and uh, collecting testimonial evidence. Uh, but uh, I'm literally having goosebumps as I'm talking because I remember the days, you know, when the war ended, when it was clear that, you know, Armenia has lost. Um, if you remember, there were videos of people burning their homes, um, you know, circulating through various social media accounts. and. Um, there was an attorney, Irene uh, Tatevosian, she circulated a video in English saying, you know, you need to preserve evidence, don't bring your homes, uh, preserve the deeds, journals, photos, anything that you have that could prove ownership later on. So, and we were talking pre prior to that too, and I reached out to her, I'm like, Irene, this video has to be in Armenian, like no one's going to understand English, like Armenians in Artsakh or people fleeing their homes they need the Armenian version. Um, so literally, I translated the video within five minutes, um, didn't even practice. It was just a one take. Uh, the video was posted on my Instagram and Facebook. Uh, within a few minutes, my friends, family members are texting, did you see this person shared it? And like within a few days, over one million people had watched the video. Uh, it got circular. It, it just went viral on me. I, I didn't even plan that to happen. Um, and then one of the people who reached out because of the video is Judge Garcia Abkarian. Uh, and she told me, hey, Melina, we, we actually lost something in Kelbajar, an investment, you know, so what do we do about it? We have the paperwork. I actually didn't even know she's a judge at, at a time. She didn't introduce herself as a judge. So I'm like, well, this is, we, we need to preserve it. Who else lost it? Do you have evidence for that? So we started talking, um, but also my friend Tamara Avaskanyan, we were also talking on the side, like how could lawyers be involved in general? So then the idea of collecting and preserving evidence came about, and we just started working without even knowing where this is going to take us. Uh, we had no contracts, nothing. We didn't even have a solid plan as to where this is going to take us, but we knew we had to collect the evidence. So we started preparing the forms. We got in touch with the Russian Armenian University. Uh, again, none of us had the experience of collecting such testimonies, but we just knew we had to get started. Uh, so that's how CFTJ got, um, you know, was formed, uh, and after six months, uh, it, we realized that it's pretty successful, and then the Armenian American University joined, and then the French University joined, and then the, you know, the state university. Uh, we thought that this is a great potential for the Armenian students. Again, it's capacity building, investing into our human capital. 
but at the same time preserving the evidence. Armenia brought a case against Azerbaijan in the International Court of Justice in The Hague. During the oral arguments for this case, attorney Sean David Murphy, representing Armenia, talked about the work that the CFTJ had done in interviewing former POWs who were held in Azerbaijan. This is regarding one of the major allegations of war crimes against Azerbaijan, which is the abuse of Armenian POWs being held in Azerbaijan. Can you tell us more about what the CFTJ uncovered during these interviews with former POWs? These are, uh, this, is go, this goes to your warning pretty much uh, of the graphic content and all of that. And I, I'm not really going to talk too much about like the horrific details that we uh, get to hear. But these are some of the most difficult interviews to watch. And I have to be honest, uh, I, I haven't watched one till the end. It's just so difficult to, you know, start watching. It's, it's like PTSD trigger for every single Armenian when you start watching and you just go back to those days uh, and the stories that you hear are horrific. Uh, but we included in the ICJ filing that you are referencing, we um, submitted a report to the ICJ uh, and to the law firm that was representing Armenia and to the Yerushay Kirakosian's office as well, again, who's representing Armenia uh, in this court. Uh, the report was about POWs and their treatment. So this is not some rumors. This is not something that we read somewhere. These are the repatriated returned POWs talking about their own abuse. So these are credible, valid testimonies that uh, we used in our report. Um, the it's difficult to talk about the instances of abuse, but um, some examples, for example, that was in the report is uh, tooth pulling, nail pulling, like things like that, or being thrown out of a um, huge truck. Uh, it's just horrific details that these uh, soldiers provided, these POWs provided that were included in the report. And again, um, in collecting these testimonies, every single legal norm was, uh, you know, taken into consideration so that um, even at that highest level, you know, the UN court, our evidence could be admissible. Because in legal fields, you know, we have something called admissibility. The evidence has to be reliable. It has to be authenticated. There has to be a chain of custody. Who saw the video? Where is it saved, you know? who else had a chance to look at it or, you know, things like that. I don't want to go into too much uh, legal details, but these are important stuff and making sure that um, your um, evidence is credible and admissible. We have many Armenian POWs who were tried and convicted in Azerbaijan of ridiculous charges in sham trials where they had no way to defend themselves against baseless criminal charges. The prison sentences that these POWs received are real, and they are now serving these sentences in Azerbaijan's prison system, which is reportedly one of the worst in the world, especially for prisoners the Aliyev regime does not like. Right. So uh, obviously we all hear about those convictions and, you know, what's going on, the sham trials pretty much happening. So as far as CFTJ is concerned, so we're not litigating our own cases. There's a difference between collecting evidence as an objective neutral party 
and then litigating or you know bringing those cases to court that's what litigating means like filing um, lawsuits for example uh, but at the same time we use our testimonies that we collect and, and produce reports reports that are being filed for example or sent to the uh, members of Congress or you know senators congressmen uh, the UN third filing that we recently had so then uh, because this is a politically you know sensitive kind of an issue so we're trying to create enough political pressure with our reports with our filing so that could be used in asking for our POWs back so it's kind of not a direct route in protecting or uh, representing these POWs because you can't even provide representation because it's a double-edged sword. Uh, in my opinion, if you do provide representation, that's kind of in a way admitting that um, these are legit trials happening. So that's, again, that's something that was discussed um, uh, very extensively when these sham trials were beginning to happen. But uh, for example, I want the viewers to understand that when we say a report is filed in the United States Congress, there's a direct link, you know, to the POWs that are tried in Azerbaijan. Every single time the U.S. or the U.N. filing is made, there's a direct link to the POWs and how they can be used. It can't be looked in isolation. Um, you know, you can't just say, oh, they filed it, so what's going to happen? But if you have enough reports, enough reports of violation, for example, of the ICJ ruling that was recently filed. In a sense, you're trying to isolate Azerbaijan in the international courts and international arena to destroy their reputation, their credibility, and putting, and that kind of puts or gives the Armenian government or whoever is going to be negotiating enough political pressure or advantage to be asking for uh, one or two POWs to be returned back. In my opinion, these POWs who were put on trial, I think they could have had the finest lawyers in the world and they still had no chance of winning their cases because Absolutely. the trial itself is an absolute sham. Exactly, which is why, like I said, um, there was an extensive discussion about their representation, but you don't even want that because you're um, playing their own dirty game by taking a part you know, in those trials. You brought us to my next question, which is that the um, CFTJ wrote two white papers. One was about the disappearance of Armenian POWs while in Azerbaijan's custody. The other white paper was about Azerbaijan's torture and mistreatment of Armenian POWs. Please explain what a white paper is mm -hmm. and what was the purpose of these white papers? Of course. So to your first question, what is a white paper? A white paper, it's kind of like a political um, term, you could say. It's when it's a complicated or sophisticated issue and you're trying to explain the situation to a party that maybe uh, may not be as involved. So for example, to the US congressman that we wrote this white paper for, we're trying to explain what the issue is with the POWs, uh, what the issue is with Nagorno-Karabakh. So that's what a white paper is. It's taking something super complicated and explaining it to a party that's not really involved in the process. So the very first one that was written was about the mistreatment, the torture of the POWs. Um, and again, those were based on the uh, uh, the repatriated uh, prisoners of wars and their testimonies. 
But the second one, and this is the one that's not as much talked about and not in terms of the white paper, but in terms of uh, this problem in and of itself, because there is a group of um, uh, prisoners or people who are just missing, missing in action, okay? And these people, Azerbaijan denies, uh, you know, having them in their custody. So no one knows where these people are. No one knows if they're dead, if they're alive, where it's just, it's as if they do not even exist or never even existed, you know? Uh, so that's what the second white paper was about, which was the supplemental ones. Because like I said, there's a large group of people, I cannot remember the number, I have to go back to my notes, but uh, it's, it's a large enough group. Um, they were uh, captured, so there is evidence of Azerbaijanis, you know, capturing them. We have those videos, but no one knows what happened to them. And Azerbaijan denies having them in their custody. So that's what the a second supplemental paper was about. International law is a very complex topic. I commend your team because you have kept your website very straightforward and accessible to the layperson. You have a page on your website that summarizes the main well-known war crimes that Azerbaijan is accused of during the 44-day Karabakh War of 2020, which include indiscriminate attacks on civilians, destruction of cultural and religious heritage, such as churches that were bombed, targeting people with white, white phosphorus munitions, which cause horrible glowing burns that don't heal, the recruiting of Syrian mercenaries, the killing of Armenian POWs, and the abuse of POWs being held in Azerbaijan. Can you speak about these allegations as it relates to the work that the CFTJ is doing? This is how I'll answer the question. Pretty much 90% of the war crimes that you mentioned or, you know, issues that you raised, allegations that you raised, with the evidence that CFTJ has collected, those allegations become facts, become actual realities. And that's why our work is so important because it's no longer an allegation because we have a witness whose testimony we have collected and explains how he was burned because of a white phosphorus. He shows his, you know, burnt marks. We have people who have suffered from drone attacks, you know, civilians, I'm not talking about soldiers, but civilians who have been injured or families whose uh, relative has uh, been killed because of a drone attack. So with, what CFTJ does is we're literally turning those allegations into factual uh, evidence. I want to emphasize that there are many other war crimes that Azerbaijan is accused of. For example, there are multiple reports of Azerbaijani soldiers dressing up as Armenian soldiers to ambush Armenians and kill them. There are multiple instances of ambulances and medical personnel being targeted and killed. There are reports of humanitarian aid workers being targeted. There are reports of Russian and French journalists being targeted to discourage reporting about the war. Some of these war crimes the CFTJ has listed in a chart on their website and along with a citation which shows the article of international law that it violates. Mm -hmm. uh, the document that you are referring to, we pretty much opened it up to everyone so that, you know, because things were flowing on the social media. It was, it was as if it's an open source investigation. So people 
were able to send us, uh, you know, such instances of war crimes so that we could add it to our own chart. And then that was actually used, for example, on July 13th when we filed our third report with the UN. Those instances or those uh, uh, violations were used in that report as well. Uh, but what I wanted to say is that you uh, read various types of, you know, violations or war crimes. There's a lot more to that, and they get a lot more uh, gross. Uh, I don't want to, one thing I will mention that, um, for example, um, organs, organs missing from some of the soldiers, and that's something that's not talked about. It didn't happen to many, but that's an issue that we're also looking into it. And again, this is something that's not talked about a lot, but um, yeah. I mean, uh, it can't get worse than that, uh, in my opinion. But um, um, it someone has to do the dirty work, and you could imagine how difficult it is for our students to be, uh, you know, collecting these testimonies. We're not talking about trained professionals who are in their, uh, I don't know, 40s or 50s who have done this for many years. We're talking about young students in their 20s who are collecting these testimonies. Luckily, we are able to provide uh, mental health training as well so that you know, they're safe, they know how to, how to deal with trauma. Um, for example, some of the witnesses, they are unable to talk, they, they start crying or there's PTSD triggers, they, they just you know, stop talking. Um, there's a lot of things that happen during an interview and that's again another like the student has to have a healing mechanism and that's the type of support that's also provided to them and again it goes um, it talks about their professional growth as well um, so that's also an important factor an important experience that these students are getting Melina as I mentioned earlier you have been active for a long time in raising awareness of the Armenian genocide during the Artsakh War of 2020, mm -hmm. Genocide Watch warned that Armenians in Artsakh are at risk of genocide. Genocide Watch has defined 10 stages of genocide. The following statement was written in a Genocide Watch report issued on November 2020. I quote, Because of Azerbaijan's invasion of Artsakh in September 2020, Genocide Watch considers Azerbaijan to be at stage 9 extermination, and at stage 10, denial. Genocide Watch considers that Azerbaijan's leadership may intend to forcibly deport the Armenian population of Artsakh by committing genocidal massacres that will terrorize Armenians into leaving Artsakh, end quote. Do you believe that Azerbaijan intended to massacre and commit genocide against the civilian population of Artsakh? I do. I mean, why else would you bomb a maternity ward? Why else would you bomb their churches? Why else would you, you know, target civilians? If this is a war, you know, the soldiers should be your target. But there's just so many instances. I mean, they're, they're talking about peaceful leaving, you know, just peace treaty or autoc living within Azerbaijan. It, it's just impossible. That's just going to lead to ethnic cleansing and, you know, to genocide. It's, 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 it's impossible. I mean, we have reports on a daily basis, uh, you know, shootings happening. Um, 
the treatment of POWs in and of itself or, you know, the psychological abuse that they go through, not just the physical one, these are all proof that, you know, what Azerbaijan did, especially during a pandemic uh, in Armenia, in Artsakh, excuse me, is um, equivalent to genocide. I agree. I believe it as well. And I think the intent was pretty clear because the ultimate goal of the Aliyev regime is to drive the Armenians from the territory that they call Karabakh by any means necessary. And uh, as we have seen, as we have talked about up to this point, we can see some of the means that they have utilized, which honestly, for reasonable people, are beyond human comprehension as to how people can do things like this. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's just, I think it's undeniable at this point. Their targets, um, hospital bombing to me was just, uh, why? If you're, if if this is a war, if this is a military, you know, operation, why would you target a hospital? It is no secret that Azerbaijan has used every resource that money can buy to try to counter the accusations of violations of international law for which Armenians have eyewitnesses and evidence. For example, there was a well-known case of a video created by Azerbaijani soldiers which showed the execution of two Armenian men in Artsakh. Azerbaijan absurdly claimed that the video was staged by Armenians like a Hollywood movie. The BBC had the video independently analyzed by experts which proved its authenticity. There's another well-known video which shows the ground shaking as a street in Stepanakert is bombed. We have so much photographic evidence of war crimes, such as bomb partially destroyed structures, giant bomb craters next to single homes, an unexploded munition in the middle of a soccer field. The worst kind of evidence are the videos that clearly show torture and beheadings circulated on social media by Azerbaijani soldiers who committed these gruesome acts. We have documented the beheaded and mutilated bodies of Armenians. Despite all of this, Mr. Aliyev has personally made statements, categorically denying all accusations of war crimes. Representatives from Azerbaijan have made many false statements in international forums and have made ridiculous accusations against Armenia. Tamara Voskanyan is an ethics attorney, and she is one of the founders of the CFTJ, as you mentioned. She said to Forbes, what the CFTJ does is bear witness to the stories of war survivors, create a record of the stories and secure the records so that no one can ever try to rewrite the stories. In a world of fake news where the truth gets constantly buried, we believe firsthand testimonies are one of the last few reliable sources of evidence. There are two different things that we have to address in the modern world. One is the court of public opinion, and the other is actual legal venues, like international courts, where evidence is presented. How powerful and effective are eyewitness accounts in actual courts and in the court of public opinion? Well, I think they're super related. Um, first of all, the public opinion does respect what's going on in the you know court of law. So, uh, but 
it's it's a tricky subject. It could be initiated in either you know field. Uh, in our case, uh, well, we don't have the resources right now to concentrate both in the public opinion and in the court of law. So we're trying to use it in the court of law, at least uh, for CFTJ. Uh, but it's extremely important. It, it is extremely important. Uh, I keep talking about the UN report, but for example, we have been around less than two years. And with the report, we've already been asked to speak at the UN, uh, at the NGO meeting that's going to be happening in um, two days, actually, August 8th. Uh, and this is an important meeting because it's a reassessment of Azerbaijani's membership in, uh, for the third convention. So these reports do matter. And kind of going back to what I said earlier, isolating Azerbaijan in a court of law or in, in international uh, arenas, that's what we have to be doing. We're not going to be alleging or uh, issuing opinions. We're going to be providing factual you know, basis for our reports. It's not Milena Melian who's saying, you know, this, uh, there are uh, evidence of um, POWs being tortured. No, it's the POW himself who's testifying about the abuse. So it's not, um, as we like to call hearsay evidence, but this is direct testimonial evidence that's going to be used. And I mean, Aliyev could sit there. I mean, we all remember the famous interview with the BBC journalist, and he just kept saying fake news. It's just fake news. I mean, he could just keep on saying that, but who cares, right? I mean, it's it's just it was humiliating to watch. And if his people are, you know, watching that and they're not doing anything about it, that's their problem at this uh, at this point. But I mean, he was humiliated uh, at the world stage. I I, I want to say. And we just have to create more and more opportunities for him to be humili humiliated in such a way. Well, I think that interview is a perfect example because it just shows that these denials don't stand up to journalistic scrutiny because, you know, the um, rep you know, the journalist who was interviewing Aliyev, she was saying okay, well, what about this evidence that we have? Or what about these journalists that provided an eyewitness account? Or what about this happening? Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want to get into the specifics of it, but essentially she was just rebutting with all of these actual facts and experiences that journalists experienced while they were covering the war. And all he could say was fake news. I think even a child wouldn't really by that interpretation mm -hmm. of, you know, just plain basic denial. They have, his uh, administration has created such a culture of Armenophobia that um, anything about Armenians, you know, uh, is pretty much accepted in, in, the, in the society. And that's a huge issue, the issue of Armenophobia in Azerbaijan. Um, that's their policy. And that's something that was in, uh, again, provisional decision uh, measures implemented by ICJ, and that's something that we talked about uh, extensively in our report. Um, because if you go back and listen or read the orders, it actually has something uh, about President Aliyev himself, like that he needs to abstain from making remarks uh, or insults about Armenians and all of that. But even after, in between December 2021 and June of this year, 2022, there are more than 12 or 13, I think, instances of Aliyev himself making insulting remarks, remarks about Armenians. 
And that's a problem in and of itself when the head of the country is um, spreading Armenophobia. One thing that I want to talk about that I think some people may think about is the videos that I was referring to earlier of beheadings and beatings and different things that were put on a messaging service mm -hmm. called Telegram, which is widely used in Azerbaijan. And it's also widely used in Armenia and mm -hmm. Russia and um, different countries. You know, the question is, the reasonable question is, let's say that you're inhumane in some way that I can't comprehend and you're committing war crimes. Okay. That's horrible in itself. But why would you put the videos on a social media app knowing that potentially you might be held accountable in some way? And I mean videos where they actually show their faces. So my hypothesis is that these soldiers put these videos on Telegram because they expect to be recognized either popularly by the people of Azerbaijan or even by the Aliyev regime because we have a terrible precedent in a murderer named Ramil Safaro who was famously recognized and rewarded by Aliyev. And this mm -hmm. is a very famous case that's known all over Azerbaijan. That's right. And, uh, you know, as you were talking, I also remember that case, you know, stabbing of uh, a lieutenant, I believe, at a NATO uh, conference in Hungary, uh, if I'm not mistaken. But that's exactly exactly right. The videos that, that are being posted is just a, a way of them saying, look what I did. And they're so proud of it, you know, like they're, they're not even trying to hide it. So there's no sense of accountability, uh, meaning they're not going to be punished. They're not going to be there's no deterrence that's like you know we use that a lot in criminal justice system there's no deterrence mechanism uh in azerbaijan when it comes to crimes committed against uh, armenians okay and that's if you think about it that argument in and of itself could be used against Arme uh, azerbaijan and international various you know forums uh in advocating for the fact that there is no peace uh for autarcies within azerbaijan because they're going to be subjected to ethnic cleansing. This is what's going to happen. There's no way to punish anyone who's going to insult, kill, assault an Armenian living in Artsakh if, if, you know, if Artsakh is going to be within Azerbaijan. That's just an impossible, uh, you know, um, way of going, moving forward. That's an impossible future. They're, they're just going to be dead. Okay. It's a forced, uh, forced displacement or they're going to be dead. That's what they have to pretty much choose, uh, the people of Artsakh. You know, the history of the world is full of wars. J just as an example, at many points in history, France and Germany were at war with each other for many reasons. Mm -hmm. But these war crimes, I believe, they speak to the psyche of how Azerbaijanis feel about Armenians, you know? Uh, and this is this is crucial. When I say Armenophobia, it's pretty much the official policy of Azerbaijan. There's no denying, there's no one is trying to say, no, that's not what we're doing. That's what's really happening. And if we're smart about it, when I say we, us Armenians around the world, we need to be able to use that 
against them, you know, and asking all these international at, at all these international firms are uh, in presenting our demands because this is going to be used against them. Of course, it's not the best argument. It's not, I mean, money buys everything. They are geographically, I don't know, richer. There's so much more political pressure happening from Russia, from Ukraine. Like, God knows what's happening in the world geopolitical games, so to, call, so to speak. But uh, at least we should be able to um, utilize this argument. Uh, and that's what CFTJ has been doing by Again, not just using allegations, not just hearsay stuff, but using factual evidence to confront the lies that they have been spreading um, in general about Armenians or about the war of uh, war in Artsakh. In June 2022, the CFTJ organized a large conference with a very diverse group of distinguished speakers. The entire conference was recorded and is available on the CFTJ website in full. Can you tell us what was this conference about and what were the goals of this conference? Uh, it was it was actually a pretty huge conference. It was a conference that lasted for three days. Um, the name it was uh, the title was Human Rights and Accountability: The Aftermath of War. And the reason why we chose that title is because it's important what happens to the victims of war, especially as the Ukraine war was happening. We chose a theme that's going to resonate with other cultures so that more attention is going to be paid to the conference happening in Yerevan, Armenia. So that's why, uh, again, like the uh, Yerevan became a center of discussion where uh, experts from 16 different countries uh, arrived in Yerevan. And uh, during a three-day conference, I mean, so many topics were discussed. We had concurrent panels happening at the same time. So it was, it was very, very extensive. However, uh, the result kind of paid off the work that was put in. It was very expensive when it comes to, you know, money to organize such a large event. But at the same time, uh, the, uh, at least we were able to show to the Armenians or to the victims that foreigners do care, that the experts do care, that there are a lot of scholars who have done extensive research on the issue of Nagorno-Karabakh or what happened during the Artsakh war. So that was the foremost, like one of the most important things. The second one was create a networking opportunity for the people in Armenia and also the international experts uh, so that they could exchange ideas or what can be done, just create opportunities to, to connect. Okay, because we need the help of these uh, experts when uh, when it comes to filing new reports or just asking for their advice how to go about a specific issue. For example, the UN speech that we're about to you know deliver, we are seeking their advice. You know, what do you recommend? Who should go? What kind of a resume should the person have? Uh, what should be the emphasis and things like that? So those were important connections that were built. Uh, but at the same time, very important, for example, when it came to the topic of self-determination panel, uh, I re highly recommend you to watch that panel. It was a super interesting discussion. Ideas were exchanged that not a lot of people were familiar with. For example, we talked about self-determination and territorial integrity, but we always talked about those ideas being in competition, meaning they're competing ideas. Uh, but an interesting perspective was brought up that they're not, that you know these both are in um, could be, you know, ascertained separately. So uh, the panel discussions are super long, but they're very insightful. I recommend you to watch. 
another interesting one that I was moderating um, was my interview with a former prisoner of Azerbaijan, Alexander Lapshin. And he was there. He talked about his own experiences when he was in prison, uh, literally the basic stuff, like what food they provided him, the cell, you know, what it looked like. Um, did he have a window? The psychological abuse that, you know, uh, he was forced to undergo. And uh, interestingly enough, he was kept in the same pre prison where uh, a lot of our current and former POWs are kept. So that was very interesting for some of the families of a POW who were also present in the audience to kind of listen to the conditions. And one thing I'll never forget from that conference is when um, Mr. Lobshin met another um, POW who had returned, who had also been in the same prison. And when they shook their hands, like, you know, each other's hands, it was just, um, they were both silent. It's like they had this eye contact. It's as if only they knew what they went through, even though they're talking about it. They're, t you know, telling us about their experiences. But to witness that handshake was a um, very special moment, at least for me, because uh, I, I don't know how to describe that. But um, they were both silent, but it was a very loud silence. Um, it's like it spoke more than, you know, words could have conveyed at that at that point in time. Um, additionally, we had uh, a brother of a uh, missing uh, individual, I want to say. You know, I mentioned the group of people who are completely missing. So we had a brother uh, who's... Um, whose brother is missing in action. He has no idea where he's at, whether he's alive or dead. Uh, and again, that was a life-changing experience for me as well. I did not, I had been in a very stressful and emotional situation before, but I didn't know even like how to handle my, how to answer his questions, his inquiries, what's going to be, you know, the next step and all of that. So that was a very, it's, it's one thing to sit here in Los Angeles and talk about the issues but it's, it's a completely different story to, to be there on the ground to meet with these individuals and to be able to address or answer their questions. Like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do with this testimony? How am I going to, you know, uh, get my brother back? That's, that's the only answer that they're looking for. And um, it was a life-changing experience, I think, not just for me, but for all of the CFTJ. Uh, but overall, the conference was a forum for the organization to talk about, you know, what we had done for the past year. And it's actually going to be happening again next year, next, uh, I want to say May 2023. Uh, we are working already on the speakers. Uh, it, it just has to be a huge legal event for the Armenian legal professionals, the law students. And I think that's a great opportunity to uh, create more friends more friends of Armenia, and not just us Armenians, but foreigners who literally fell in love with the country. So that was kind of an amazing experience for them all. Absolutely. I think it, I think it was a, a great conference. Of course, I saw the videos on the internet. I wasn't at the actual conference, mm -hmm. but it was such a diverse group of people. You'll never see this group of people at another conference again all together because it's just, you know, all from different disciplines, not necessarily all attorneys. Mm -hmm. um, 
I just want to talk very briefly about um, Alexander Lopshin because I think his case is very interesting because he's one of the few people who has actually won a case against Azerbaijan at the European Court of Human Rights mm -hmm. for illegally detaining him. Right. And he wants his case to be used as a precedent. Uh, you know, obviously he didn't get paid. Um, Money-wise, there was, I think, 30,000 euros that they issued, but obviously the Azerbaijani government has not paid that amount. I mean, it's just, it's like, that's a laughable amount, like, to even provide for all the torture that he had to go through. And I invite you all to go and watch that interview because he does talk about in detail what they did. Um, the psych psychological torture was very interesting, how they tried to... Um, convince him that it was day when it was night so like just the time change and you know changing the menu of his meals and it's just insane you know the extent to which they went in order to um you know get what they want and they they were literally forcing him to say Karabakh is Azerbaijan and he, his answer like why do I have to say I have nothing to do with where I'm not even Armenian but uh, that's their, um, their their psyche. That's the extent that they go with even foreigners who visit Artsakh, pretty much. So I invite you all to watch that. And uh, to my question um, to Mr. Lopshin about his case and all of that, his wish was like so that it could be used as a precedent, that something could be done with it. And uh, we are thinking of various ways of bringing such cases against Azerbaijan, uh, maybe not directly through CFTJ, but that's something that uh, definitely is in the works. One thing that we are doing for the POWs already is um, uh, there's an individual complaint mechanism with the UN, the United Nations. So uh, we are filing those complaints for the returned POWs already, but that requires a lot of paperwork uh, in the sense that the POWs have to give their consent. Um, there's always, some of them are scared to, you know, put their names on anything because they have been threatened by the Azeris that, you know, this is what's going to happen to your friend if you say anything or you talk to anyone, the friend who's, you know, and still in custody. So. There's so many issues, so many layers of issues when you're dealing with such testimonies. So you have to be careful um, not to violate anyone's confidentialities and make sure that the wishes of your um, eyewitness or you know witness uh, is uh, respected. Can you tell us some of the ways in which the eyewitness testimonies obtained by the CFTJ have been used? Of course, uh, I think we talked about most of it, uh, but um, it's, it's, it's so diverse, you could do so much with it. Uh, again, reports uh, to um, various entities, the UN, the Congress, the local officials, uh, or reports, the amicus briefs that could be used, again, uh, at the International Court of Justice. Uh, so many things that could be done with it, or even... Um, it could be used for advocacy purposes as well. Now, because th there's one thing you have to keep in mind. Um, most of the time you're collecting evidence when something is already done, like it's, it's just a done deal, it's finished, you know, it's not happening anymore. For example, when a crime takes place, 
the crime is completed. So you go out there and you collect testimonies or you know witness testimonies. And in this case, it's happening while we're collecting testimonies. Uh, violations are happening on a daily basis. Uh, for example, there's the villages that are talked about, you know, that are going to be turned to um, Azerbaijan, for example. As we speak, we're trying to collect evidence or preserve what's there so that if there is an issue with, for example, cultural heritage argument that there was a destruction of some, you know, site, we have evidence of what it was before or and the damage that was done in the past, I mean, and that will be done by Azeris in the future. So this is an ongoing conflict and we're trying to collect evidence in the middle of it. So it's very difficult. Um, it's extremely difficult to gain the trust of the witness to talk, to talk about the issues. It's extremely difficult to uh, convince them that it's not gonna be used for political purposes. Uh, this is something that I didn't really talk about during today's interview, but I really wanna emphasize that PFTJ is not a political organization, completely apolitical. Uh, we are not guided, no directions are given, like who to interview, why to interview, and things like that. And most importantly, our database is extremely secure. Uh, and no one has access to our evidence, no government has access to our evidence. Uh, I mean, they could petition only um, to use our evidence for litigation or legal cases. But if it has a political undertone, it's not going to be, you know, they're not going to be, no one's going to be given access. So that's very important. I mean, it's open for everyone to use. However, with the caveat of it being not to be used for political purposes. That's very important. And uh, because CFTJ is, it's an independent organization, a third neutral organization, and we want to, always keep that reputation so that we could file such reports, whether that's with the UN, the ECHR, you know, and uh, that's, that's extremely important to continue being an objective organization. So with that said, even for example, during a testimony, someone talks about something that was committed by an Armenian, you know, that they had witnessed, it's still part of the testimony, you know, we don't skip that. Uh, so that objectivity is always there and that's kind of important when you're presenting such um, reports at such high levels. Um, anything else that we had done? I mean, like I said, we're only two years old, almost two years old. November, we're going to be two years old, but there's so many other projects that are happening as we speak. Uh, the biggest one that we're about to, you know, uh, well, it started, but we're going to um, kind of uh, do a lot more of it is uh, those individual complaints that I talked about with the UN, because it, it's, a, it's one thing to create a report for a group of people, but it's another thing to select that individual POW and write uh, about them, the torture that they had with, witnessed. So it's like giving justice or uh, making sure that they're heard somewhere at some form. So that's very important for uh, a POW to have that sense of uh, redress. The Center for Truth and Justice is an organization that was founded by Armenian lawyers and activists in response to the war crimes and human rights violations committed by Azerbaijan during the Artsakh War of 2020. The CFTJ trains lawyers and law students in Armenia and Artsakh to carry out the crucial work of recording eyewitness testimony from the many victims of the Artsakh War. 
the CFTJ is gathering and preserving this evidence for academic use and for use in legal cases. The CFTJ is also raising awareness of the many war crimes and violations of international law committed by Azerbaijan. What I really want to end with, and this is, I think, what our organization is doing, is we have turned from uh, warfare to lawfare. Pretty much we're fighting in the legal uh, courts, in the legal system, and that's a fight that has been, I think, uh, underutilized for so many years. And that's something that we have to keep on, um, you know, doing and um, just expanding. Um, it's a must, which is why this network is being created and it's being expanded by, you know, utilizing so many international experts. Um, we have to concentrate. If we can't win in the, you know, battlefield, we have to at least be able to win in a court of law. So that's the least that we could do for Armenia. And I do encourage, if you are an attorney, if you are a law student interested, join the fight. Um, it's an extremely rewarding experience. Um, so just get in touch with us. There's always work to be done, whether you could, you know, put in an hour a week, two hours a week, five hours a week, or more than that, whatever it is, uh, it's, it's definitely an extremely rewarding experience. Melina, thank you for joining us today. I also want to thank our viewers for watching. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I definitely appreciate all the time that you took to research about our organization. Uh, it, it, it means a lot. So this was a very substantive interview and I appreciate for the opportunity. My guest today is Melina Melian. She's a lawyer specializing in immigration law and the co-founder and board member of the Center for Truth and Justice. Joining us today from Glendale, California.